Hello, hello. What's up, everyone? Um, you are joining us for episode six of the Lab Birds podcast. It's us, your hosts, Britvi and Jackie. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I hope everyone's well. Um, so I thought before we get started with our episode, um, how are you doing, Jackie? How is everything going? How is grad school treating you? Grad school, um, to be honest, has been a bit busy and hectic for me because I've been applying for a grant with Mm -hmm. my supervisor. So it's been a really good learning experience, but also, sorry, my dog just barked. That is okay. (laughs) Um, But yeah, also very, very hectic and busy. Mm -hmm. But now that that's done, I feel like a bit of a weight lifted off of my shoulders. And now I can start focusing on some other things. Yeah, definitely. The grant writing process can be very, very, um, you know, um, strenuous. So mm-hmm. totally understand you. I hope you get to relax for a bit. Um, I hope so too. You. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. And I hope I'm fingers crossed you get the grant. Yes, fingers definitely crossed. Uh, what about you, Bridvi? How has grad school been treating you this past month? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I'm on the same page with you there. I've had a lot of things going on. Um, I think my mind's been sort of um, divided, you know, between doing my research and, you know, kickstarting another project, which has been really interesting and um, fun, uh, for sure. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm in the stage of my research, which is more has to do with a lot of creative outputs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting and fun um, instead of, you know, me just reading a bunch of um, research articles. It's more, you know, working as a team, collaborative, collaborative discussions, um, because we're finally sort of developing um, the app that I've been sort of um, doing um, informative research on for app development uh, for heart failure app. I think I just said app so many times, but <laughs> anyways, it's a creative process. So it's fun now, I think. Um, but I've also had, you know, other things going on with um, TAing and marking um, assignments and also, you know, supporting and supervising um, undergraduate student, uh, practicum students. So it's been a lot, but I've sort of um, kept, it's, it's kept me busy. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So I guess we can start our episode topic. Um, and, you know, before we discuss that, did you guys know that March is National Nutrition Month? Um, National Nutrition Month was created to sort of bring nutrition awareness and learn about making informed food choices and fostering healthful eating habits and also to, you know, have meaningful conversations surrounding nutrition. Um, And so in align with the fact that uh, March is National Nutrition Month, our episode for this month um, is uh, in aligned with um, ingredients for a healthier tomorrow, which is the focus or the theme of this year's um, nutrition month. Um, so we're focusing on, you know, food insecurity specifically for this episode, but the theme itself for nutrition month um, 
is to have, you know, conversations surrounding food insecurity, food literacy, sustainable food choices, as well as nutrition care and prevention. So, you know, in celebration of this month, we thought, you know, we're going to be talking specifically about food insecurity, uh, what it is, uh, the different types of food insecurity, its um, epidemiology, how it's an intersectional issue, um, the health impacts of food insecurity, and also some uh, solutions to food insecurity. Um, and also later in the episode, we sit down with our guest Tara Hatangadi and discuss the past research she has done in this area, specifically looking at food insecurity among um, university students. Um, I think this will be a very interesting and informative episode, especially to those who might not be aware of what food insecurity is and some of its implications. Um, yeah, I think we can get started with our uh, episode. Yeah, me too. And um, I'm really excited about Nutrition Month and just taking the time um, for us both, Bridby and I, got to learn more about a topic that isn't really a focus of our research, but that impacts so many different people and is really important, I think, if you're doing nutrition research um, to consider how food insecurity can impact the populations that you're studying. For sure. So let's dive in into what food insecurity is. So food insecurity is defined as the inadequate or insecure access to food due to financial constraints. So food insecurity, it can be caused by a variety of factors. One of the most important factors is probably having a low income. And so you might have a low income due to being unemployed or underemployed, or perhaps you have um, a disability or some other type of condition that prevents you from um, getting a job that is appropriate for you. Um, it can also be impacted by uh, not having access to affordable housing. So perhaps if you live in an area where rent is super high, then that means you have less money to spend on other things like food. Um, and as I mentioned, having um, a chronic health condition uh, can also really impact food insecurity. Uh, food insecurity um, can also be caused or, or impacted by the local food environment. So if healthy food options are either not available or they are financially inaccessible and very expensive, then that can also create um, food insecurity for individuals. Yeah. And um, in Canada, food insecurity is defined um, sort of in three different levels. Um, so we have marginal food insecurity, moderate food insecurity, and severe food insecurity. Um, with marginal food insecurity, um, it's worry about, you know, running out of food and or you have limited selection of food um, because there is a lack of money uh, for food. Um, moderate food insecurity is when an individual has to compromise in the quality and or quantity uh, of food um, because of lack of money for food. And then we have uh, severe food insecurity, which is basically when an individual is sort of missing meals, um, they've reduced their food in intake and at, you know, extreme levels, they're going, you know, days without uh, food. Yeah. Um, and in contrast to food insecurity, I think it's important to define what food security is. So that way, um, you have an idea of what the other side of the coin is. So mm -hmm. um, in the research context, food security refers to have continual access um, 
in physical, social, and economic ways to um, adequate, safe, high quality, nutritious foods that meet your food preferences and needs for um, a healthy life. And so um, as Bridby mentioned, there's all these different levels of food insecurity. And while the United Nations has set a target to quote, end hunger by 2030 as part of their sustainable development goals, unfortunately, we're actually really far um, from meeting Mm -hmm. this target. So right Mm -hmm. now, an estimated 25% of people um, across the globe experience some form of food insecurity with about 9% of people experiencing severe food insecurity where they are perhaps missing meals, have a reduced food intake and are maybe going some days without food. Yeah. And this high, you know, prevalence of food insecurity, um, you know, leads to undernourishment. Uh, with about 8.9% of the global population, which is about 663 million um, of uh, individuals who are not eating enough food to meet their energy requirements and needs. Yeah. So in children, this undernourishment can have um, really severe uh, long-term health consequences. So about 22% of children under five across the globe are stunted, meaning that they are significantly shorter for their age compared to the average. And this is usually a consequence of continually having poor nutrition or experiencing food insecurity um, and can also be caused by um, repeated infections. Mm -hmm. And if we're looking at, you know, within Canada, um, in 2020, uh, one in 10 households experience, uh, were reported to experience food insecurity, Uh, the majority of these households did experience moderate food insecurity, where um, it was reduced in quality and quantity of food because of a lack of money, while 3% experienced severe food insecurity, where, you know, they're actually missing meals, and, you know, in extreme cases, going days without food. So I think when we're talking about food insecurity, um, it's good to bring in intersectionality because food insecurity is an intersectional issue. And what I mean by, you know, intersectionality is how, you know, different systems of oppression interact um, and how social and political identities of an individual can actually combine and cause um, different types and degrees of discrimination or oppression, as well as uh, privilege. So when we talk about, you know, food insecurity being an intersectional issue, we mean that it's sort of interconnected with, um, you know, gender, income, race, uh, poverty, and, you know, access to resources. Yeah, it's really um, striking when you look at the statistics on food insecurity to see how uh, groups that are marginalized are much Mm -hmm. more likely to be impacted by food insecurity. So starting with a few of the factors that you listed, um, gender and income um, really impact food insecurity. So Mm -hmm. households um, that have children that are led by um, a lone female parent, so a single mom, um, these households are especially vulnerable to food insecurity, um, with one third of these households being food insecure. In terms of income in Canada, food insecurity has a very strong relationship to income where the risk of food insecurity increases as a household's income decreases. And this is reflective of not just a household's monthly income, but also assets and resources that a household may have like owning property. 
it has been found that changes to your income can have a high impact on individuals who are at risk of food insecurity. And multiple studies have shown that if you own a home, you are less likely to be at risk for food insecurity than if you are renting. Um, This is dependent on the value of the home you own. So basically how big that asset is, but it is an asset that you can draw on at times of financial need to, you know, cover bills and pay for your groceries. And I think it's really interesting to see how food insecurity intersects with income, especially owning versus renting a property, because right now in Canada, Mm -hmm. the housing market has gone up exponentially. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but People are overbidding on houses by uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars over the asking Mm -hmm. price. So it's really, for me as someone who rents, it's kind of scary to to think Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I I was thinking it's interesting to see like the climate that we're in right now, how that is impacting, you know, food insecurity with the housing markets and mm-hmm. you know, buying versus renting. Um, yeah. And, you know, in addition to income if and income and gender as well, um, if we look at race and food insecurity, um, the prevalence of food insecurity differs, you know, by racial and cultural groups. So in Canada, Indigenous or Black households uh, reported the highest rates of food insecurity, almost two to three times, um, you know, higher compared to white households. Um, it's important to, you know, acknowledge here that these consequences are really really. Uh, have relation to, you know, Canada's history of colonialism and also systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Um, So in talking about, you know, gender, income, race, um, and food insecurity, you can kind of see how food insecurity can be a complex issue with several, you know, interacting components. Um, You know, this sort of emphasizes the need for like a comprehensive solution for insecurity um, that take into account, you know, various other aspects factors um, that influence food insecurity, like what we just talked about in terms of income, race, um, and gender. Yeah. When we talk about food insecurity and how it intersects with other issues, I also think it's important to remember that food insecurity isn't just about hunger. Uh, Food insecurity Mm -hmm. can also have really severe impacts on our health and it can impact our health in a multitude of ways. So one way that food insecurity impacts our health is um, through our diet. So those who are experiencing food insecurities are more likely to have nutrient inadequacies. So they might, you know, be deficient in certain vitamins or minerals that are important to their health. Um, And they often have an overall poor quality of diet. So Mm -hmm. research has shown that those who are food insecure, they often have lower intakes of vegetables and fruit, which are some of the healthiest foods that, you know, you can consume perhaps arguably so, but those are Mm -hmm. um, healthy food choices. And yeah, there's a low intake of those types of foods uh, for those who are food insecure. Um, beyond these nutritional outcomes though, which are perhaps obvious when we think about someone who's food insecure, um, there are also a lot of negative impacts on our physical and mental health. Yeah. And I think like when we talk about, um, you know, food insecurity and how it impacts our health, 
um, you know, adults who experience food insecurity are more likely to develop chronic health conditions like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and arthritis. Um, you know, many of these conditions are, you know, the leading causes of uh, morbidity and mortality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the relationship between, you know, food insecurity and chronic illnesses uh, can be further complicated by the fact that adults with mobility issues are more likely to be food insecure compared to those um, who do not have mobility issues. Um, You know, likely that if you do have mobility issues, it may be harder for you to access um, points of um, where you can, you know, get food um, Mm -hmm. or even some sort of those social assistance to get food. Um, In terms of uh, food insecurity, it also makes it difficult for individuals to manage their chronic conditions um, and can, you know, many individuals might also forego their treatment because of high costs. Um, And another interesting thing to think about is that many chronic illnesses, um, some of the precipitating factors um, can be related to diet. Um, So, you know, a lot of Uh, chronic illnesses can be managed or improved by dietary changes, uh, which can be difficult to adhere to if you are, you know, experiencing uh, food insecurity. Yeah, when I was um, doing research for this episode, the first kind of diet that I thought of to um, help manage chronic um, diseases was the DASH diet. So the Mm -hmm. dietary approaches to stop hypertension diet. And this is a very well-researched diet for those who are living with hypertension or are at risk of developing hypertension that is scientifically proven to help reduce your blood pressure. Um, Mm -hmm. But this diet requires individuals to eat foods that are rich in potassium, calcium, and magnesium, and low in saturated fat and sodium. So this means that if you're following the DASH diet, your diet is likely full of plenty of vegetables and fruits and lean meat and fish, which are some of the most expensive items at the grocery store. And these items are likely inaccessible to those with food insecurity. So someone who is diagnosed with hypertension and um, is food insecure, it's just an extra barrier to them to um, Mm -hmm. help actualize their health and take care of themselves when they can't afford these things. For sure. Yeah. And when you just mentioned that, I was thinking about my, you know, my research um, Mm -hmm. with developing this app for uh, supporting uh, dietary education for heart failure management. I'm just thinking back to, you know, we're delivering um, dietary education and, you know, uh, enforcing healthy eating principles in this app. But while we are developing these app, these are things that we're thinking about. We're thinking about, um, you know, individuals access to foods and, you know, some people, um, some individuals don't uh, have access to all of the, um, you know, eating plenty of vegetables and fruits, lean meats. Uh, As Jackie said, they are some of the most expensive grocery items. But, you know, when we're thinking about it, um, at least we'll able be able to, you know, when we're making interventions for public health, it's always good to think about um, access and affordability of foods. Um, Mm -hmm. So in terms of, you know, my app, there are points in the app where we're thinking about realistic, you know, dietary education. You know, some people might only have access to the TV dinners that they eat. And so what can we do in that situation that so that they make the 
best choice, even if it's the TV dinners, maybe the ones with reduced sodium or, you know, so I think that um, it's just like, it made me think about even when I'm doing my work, how I have to have this in the back of my head. Yeah. And and I should, I think that's really important because I think that sometimes when dietary advice doesn't consider those things, then people Mm -hmm. just ignore it entirely. But if they can tell that it's been tailored to at least like consider their needs, like if Mm -hmm. you, you know, say you can choose frozen and canned vegetables and fruits, like it doesn't have to be fresh. Like those are more affordable options typically compared to fresh vegetables and fruits. And at least you're, you know, trying to, and also, you know, providing realistic ways. So let's say that these individuals can only buy canned fruits and vegetables. Um, Mm -hmm. Then maybe, you know, I'm thinking about sodium here because that's what, you know, the main dietary recommendation (laughs) is for cardiovascular disease to limit sodium intake. But, you know, if you have to choose canned foods, then how can you cook with that? Or how can you make it so that you are not, you know, limiting your sodium intake? So wash, washing canned uh, products um, is one mm-hmm. way. So I think, yeah, I think in all in all, I, um, I just started to connect how we're sort of thinking about these things as we um, build, you know, interventions for the population. Yeah. In talking about food insecurity and health, um, we have to bring up its strong correlation with uh, mental health. Um, so food insecurity is strongly correlated with poor mental health. Um, you know, as the severity of food insecurity increases, the risk of adverse mental health outcomes, including depression, anxiety, or um, even suicidal thoughts also increases. And I I think this is a really interesting connection between food insecurity and poor uh, mental health. And we'll have more time later in the episode to discuss this with um, Tara, which is, um, Mm -hmm. you know, her, the basis of her, the research that she has done. Yeah. Unfortunately, because food insecurity is so associated with some of these negative health outcomes that we just discussed. Um, it also means that food insecurity um, is associated with premature mortality. So those who are food insecure have an average lifespan uh, that is nine years shorter than those who are food secure. Um, and this is based on like Canadian data. So comparing food insecure Canadians to Canadians who are food secure. And this relationship, it persists even when we adjust analyses for other social determinants of health, like education. Mm -hmm. So ultimately this strong relationship between food insecurity and negative health outcomes, it results in a lot of higher costs for our healthcare systems. Um, Healthcare Mm -hmm. costs are higher for households that are experiencing food insecurity, um, with the costs increasing as food insecurity increases. Yeah. And, um, you know, inevitably we got to think about some of the solutions to address food insecurity, um, and, you know, strategies that have been taken that are, that we need more of. Um, so one of the common strategies we think of as a solution to food insecurity is actually food banks. Um, there are a number of charities, you know, volunteer run organizations, we have soup kitchens and meal programs that provide, um, you know, individuals who may need, um, need it with food and groceries for, free of charge. Um, this might, you know, be seen as a good solution. And reality, only a small percent of 
um, individuals from food insecure households are actually using food banks. Um, so I think this is interesting. The the people that really need it the most, only a small percent of them are using it. Um, and a Canadian study conducted in 2019 um, found that food banks were one of the least common tools used by severely food insecure households. Um, so severely food insecure households. So we're talking about people that are missing meals and even going, you know, many days without food. And this is one of the least common tools that they're using. You know, some of those limitations with food banks can be that, you know, their location, people living in food insecure households might just not have access to them. Um, also, food banks are, you know, reliant on donations. So how much and how often you get food is really dependent on the available availability of foods, right? Um, so food banks can be a temporary solution, but we need to address some of the underlying causes of food insecurity. And as we, as Jackie discussed earlier, Earlier, um, income is one of those underlying causes. Yeah. So one of the best ways to reduce food insecurity is through social assistance programs. So this can include employment insurance benefits, um, child tax benefits, um, pensions, as well as um, there's different social assistance programs um, in Canada for seniors as well. So those can all be very beneficial for helping to increase someone's income and allow them to spend more money on food. Uh, these types of programs, they're essentially providing services to support an individual's personal, social, and emotional well-being. So some of these programs can include, you know, um, extra income, but it can also include housing, um, better access to food, healthcare, um, as well as education. And by providing um, financial resources to the people who need it, we're helping to meet their basic needs. This type of assistance um, and support in combination with programs that focus on increasing access to local foods that are high quality, affordable, um, and culturally appropriate to the communities um, that live there can really help to address food insecurity. Mm -hmm. And also something interesting to note here um, is that according to a report published by Statistics Canada in fall um, of 2020, which was about six to nine months into the COVID-19 pandemic, um, one in 10 Canadians aged 12 or older reported experiencing food insecurity. This was actually less than what was reported in the 2017-2018 national de data on household food insecurity, um, which reported one in eight Canadians experiencing food insecurity. So you know, during that pandemic or during the, those months, food insecurity actually decreased. And so a possible explanation for this decrease is that when the pandemic sort of started, there was, you know, multiple pandemic related financial assistance uh, benefits that were implemented by the government. So one example for those living in Canada was the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. Um, and it basically provided um it was it provided financial assistance to those who lost their jobs or, you know, they had reduced work hours as a result of the pandemic. There was also um, a decrease in spending due to, you know, the multiple economic shutdowns. Um, so the financial assistance that we got provided by the, uh, the programs and also, you know, having more of that disposable income from the reduced spending 
um, could have, you know, mitigated food insecurity in households. Um, it would actually be interesting to see what the data from, you know, the next Canadian Community Health Survey will be regarding food insecurity as, you know, we're now sort of in those later phases um, of the pandemic, maybe hopefully, you know, reaching <laughs> post-pandemic conditions um, where some of these assistances are, you know, no longer available. So it would be interesting to see what happens or what the state of food insecurity in Canada um, would be and also in the world because, you know, the pandemic has impacted all of us um, in, you know, same but also varying levels of way. Yeah, I think it will be really interesting to see what happens now that we're entering these late phases of the pandemic and perhaps, you know, someone can sure. do a study where they compare mm -hmm. um, food insecurity in Canada, where we had um, the CERB, the Canadian uh, emergency response benefit to countries that didn't have those types of yeah. assistance programs and how that impacted food insecurity. I'm sure someone's already on that <laughs> and it's being submitted as a manuscript right now. <laughs> yeah. Because when, when CERB came out, I know, um, quite a few people in my social network who commented that it was either more money or about as much money as they were making while they were working. So I think CERB yeah. really helped to make people feel economically secure in a time mm -hmm. of so much in economic instability that was going on. But now For that sure, program yeah. is done mm -hmm. and inflation and the cost of groceries keep going up. So yeah, it would be so interesting to see what the conditions are now with regards to food insecurity. Yeah. Yeah. So on an individual level to kind of wrap things up, um, one way that you can kind of help your community in addressing food insecurity is that you can donate to these types of organizations that do address food insecurity. Um, you can donate money or you can also donate non-perishable food items, even though these um, types of supports are not used by everyone experiencing food insecurity. They are mm -hmm. helpful to those who do use them. For sure. Uh, if you don't have money or extra food to give, if you want, you can volunteer your time um, to these organizations. Um, and if you don't have time, money, or other resources, one thing that you can do is spread awareness about um, food insecurity. And you can advocate for social assistance and programs. So in Ontario, at least, we have a new election coming up in June. So if you're of voting age and you live in the same province as Bridview and I, perhaps mm -hmm. consider voting for a candidate who will advocate for stronger social assistance programs to yeah, um, sure. reduce food insecurity. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I hope that, you know, provided some information on what food insecurity is what food security is, and also some of the impacts of food insecurity. Uh, we'll now have um, Tara on to discuss her grad school um, experience, as well as her research on food insecurity and mental health in university students. Tara is a public health researcher and health policy advisor. She completed a Bachelor of Health Sciences from the University of Western Ontario and a Master of Health Sciences from Ontario Tech University. 
During her master's program, Tara's research focused on food insecurity and mental health among university students, which we are going to be finding out more about um, since that's our topic for today's episode. Uh, During her master's, Tara presented her research at several academic conferences, and she also participated in the three-minute thesis competition where she received the People's Choice Award. Tara's passion for food security and university student mental health has led her to participate in various advocacy projects, including speaking at the Meal Exchange National Food Summit. Since graduating from her master's program, she has also shared her experiences using focus group interviews with incoming graduate students and mentored four consecutive cohorts in building skills and capacities to conduct participant interviews. Um, And these were cohorts that Fridby and I were both very fortunate to be a part of and learn from Tara. Uh, Since her master's, Tara has worked in mental health research at two academic hospitals and in mental health and addiction services evaluation at a community health agency. Currently, Tara is working at the Ministry of Health, where she makes policy recommendations to effectively allocate provincial health sector resources, advance system efficiency, and improve the health of populations across Ontario. So with that, thank you so much for joining us today, Tara, on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be chatting with both of you. One of the themes that we, you know, we like to explore in our podcast is, you know, grad school life. And um, Jackie and I have sort of shared our um, inspiration for uh, doing a master's and then, you know, now a PhD. So what inspired you to pursue your master's degree? Yeah, that's a really good question, Brittany. And one that I certainly asked myself too, uh, before pursuing my master's. So really in a word, uh, curiosity, I've always been someone with a lot of questions uh, that center around why and how things work. And I think many of those whys and hows are often about big problems that communities and populations face. So for me, pursuing grad school was a way for me to learn how to critically ask questions and to also begin to answer those questions in a, uh, you know, robust manner, if you will. Mm -hmm. So my undergraduate studies were in health sciences, as Jackie mentioned, and it was during this time that I began to really expand my understanding of the ways in which external factors social policies and various other phenomena around us impact health. And we all know right now we call this the social determinants of health. Um, and I've always wanted to learn more about the social determinants of health. And, and, I, and I also believed that I was capable of studying more and uh, with that intention of contributing to knowledge about these topics and, and hopefully positively shaping policies that improve outcomes for people. For sure. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, what drives you and sort of inspired you to go on this journey of your master's degree. Yeah, I really like that word that you used, uh, curiosity. I think we often associate curiosity with like childhood or youthfulness, but I think as Mm -hmm. adults and as researchers and health scientists, you know, approaching things from that angle of curiosity is really important and exciting. For sure. So speaking of curiosity, Tara, what made you want to focus your research on food insecurity and mental health in university students and pursue these topics in your master's? Yeah, that's another really good question, Jackie. Um, You know, mental health is an area of passion for mine and one that I hold very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I have my own personal history with it, and I've witnessed also the ways in which stigma has negatively impacted the mental health of family and friends and uh, my own communities. So 
I, um, I always knew that I wanted to pursue research in an area that I was passionate about. And so mental health being at the focus of that was kind of always the intention. Uh, and it happened sort of organically. And I wish there was an aha moment, but there really was. And it was just always something I wanted to study. And uh, interestingly enough, the summer before I started my program, I was just beginning to learn about the food justice movement. Uh, which emerged out of a growing need to support communities with, you know, accessing enough good quality food in socially acceptable ways and food that's culturally appropriate as well. And it's a really incredible movement. And uh, just before I started my program, I started to learn about it. So as I learned, this movement was about addressing system-wide issues, right, with access. And these issues range from financial pressures and challenges to geographic barriers and so on. So I was really fortunate to be guided in my learning uh, journey by two extremely thoughtful and knowledgeable advisors. So we talked a little bit about one of them, Dr. Vogel. My other supervisor was uh, Dr. Cote. So each of them had an interest in both mental health and food insecurity. So I was really fortunate to have their support. And uh, through my keen interest in and passion for these topics and their expertise and guidance, my research was born. That's wonderful. Yeah. And it's wonderful to hear that you had, you know, supportive advisors who sort of helped you on this journey as well. So one of your studies, you know, that you conducted looked at the epidemiology of food insecurity and mental health issues in university students. So um, can you say, take some time to sort of describe your findings from this study and uh, what you learned from it? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you the quick version, but if anyone's mm-hmm. really interested, um, you know, we did have the opportunity to publish papers on each of these studies um, and they better describe the detail methodology and the findings in, in further detail, but sort of the, um, the high level version or the cliff notes version, if you will. So for the epidemiological study, we measured food insecurity using the gold standard and widely used tool developed by the USDA and measured mental health as symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress, and used a, another widely used tool known as the DAS-21. So really, we, we were working with uh, two really validated tools. In this study, we found that one in four students reported food insecurity in the last 12 months, and those that did were nearly three times as likely to report symptoms of depression, anxiety, and, or stress, as we described it, psychological distress oh, wow. in the past week. So really, mm-hmm. I mean, staggering results there. Um, students mm-hmm. who experienced food insecurity reported worrying about running out of food or that they compromised their quality or quantity of food. And some actually said that they ran out of food and went a whole day without eating in some instances. So I wanna highlight that each of these measures that we used had different points, right? I mentioned the USDA one, which measures food insecurity is looking at a 12 month time frame. And the psychological distress is looking at a one week frame. So what that tells us from a quantitative or epidemiological perspective is that the results are actually any any association that we could measure is an underestimation of the two of the true association between these two constructs, because students who experience food insecurity any time during the last 12 months were significantly more likely to report psychological distress in the week that the survey was administered, which is pretty wild Mm -hmm. when you think about that um, at an association level. 
I'm just curious to, you know, know if you sort of looked at the background of the university students. So in terms of difference between um, students living on residence versus, you know, at home. Mm -hmm, We did. So there weren't any significant differences, which actually was even more concerning because you would think that they're the nuance, you know, it it would capture that. Right. So um, and I think that that is another really great reason why it was important for us Mm -hmm. to take it a bit further and engage students who had actual lived experience in focus group interviews, because a survey can only take you so far, right? It's important to also hear from students who are experiencing food insecurity and Mm -hmm. have them describe in their own words, how their experience of food insecurity has impacted their mental health. Yeah. I found it really interesting when you noted how the relationship that you found between psychological distress and food insecurity is so underestimated based on the way that the different surveys worked. Were you at all surprised to find such a strong correlation between psychological distress and food insecurity? Um, in a, in an answer, in a short answer rather, no, I wasn't. And that's actually really uh, distressing that I, that I wasn't surprised. And, you know, during the time that I conducted the study, there wasn't a lot of literature that spoke to the association between food insecurity and mental health, particularly in this population, uh, which was primarily our intention of embarking on such a study. But the available literature among other population groups did suggest strong associations between food insecurity and poor mental and physical health. And that this association was, um, as it's described, bi-directional in that health impacts food insecurity and food insecurity impacts health. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, given that food insecurity at its core is an income issue, which is very stigmatized, I was not surprised at all to learn that, you know, experiencing food insecurity would take a toll on anyone's mental health. Yeah, I I agree. You know, we discussed earlier in the episode, you know, the, the relationship between food insecurity and income. And so you also see that among, you know, university students as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in your second study, um, you conducted qualitative interviews, as you said, um, to sort of develop a better understanding of how, you know, food insecurity impacts the mental health of students. Um, what are some of your key findings? And did you hear anything from students that you were not expecting? Yeah, so engaging in discussions with students was truly eye-opening, as I said, you know, earlier. and um, it completely expanded my understanding of food insecurity and student mental health. You know, I went into it with the intention of facilitating conversations with students that had lived experience with food insecurity. And and I came out of it really learning so much. Students spoke of financial constraints as a major factor. That's one I was expecting. Um, They also Mm -hmm. talked about limited support from university programs, limited access um, to good quality food, lack of awareness of availability and location of on-campus assistance. So really overall, there was just so much insight that was gained from engaging with them. And they felt that they were constantly making trade-offs when it came to food. And that heavily impacted their mental health, which really isn't surprising when you're constantly in this battle of, um, well, do I have money for food? Um, You know, they spoke of shame and stigma around asking for help. Uh, And they felt like it was an invisible problem that no one really talks about and that no one is going through because they don't talk about it. So they don't know who's going through it. Right. So it was through these conversations that I also discovered uh, what they described as 
powering through. So we called it when we were, you know, making sense of this data and analyzing it. Um, it was this notion of powering through. So although they were experiencing this really challenging problem that greatly impacted their mental health, uh, my participants spoke of holding on to this hope that food insecurity mm. is just a fleeting student issue. It's just something you got to get through uh, to get out the other end, right? Their descriptions of these experiences and how they viewed them were really actually an impact of food insecurity being viewed as almost a rite of passage among students, something they just have to do and get through. And to me, that was actually the most troubling uh, finding and most troubling thing to learn. Yeah. Was it like almost as if they they had accepted that this is something that they have to go through and they just have to sort of, you know, power through? Um, yeah, as absolutely. You said. Yeah. Um, yeah, Brindy, I, think, I, I would say that yeah. it, that's exactly right. Um, as they described it, it was mm-hmm. really this pain in their voice that like, you know, this is, this is terrible. And it, you know, I'm, it's, it's weighing so heavily on my mental health, but I just have to do it because I have no other choice. And that is, yeah. it was just so sad to, to hear that. Yeah. And I think another interesting point that I wanted to sort of um, go into as well was um, the the university environment and maybe the food environment in the university. Was there, I, I know you said you talked about how the university can support the students. Was there anything that, um, you know, were your results, was there any sort of action that led uh, from from your results or from your study, was there anything where the university was interested and um, they sort of they, you know, they so, uh, sort of saw these barriers that the university environment was creating for these students and mm-hmm. um, maybe you know leading to some potential solutions. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's the hope, and and I I think from my perspective, this was to, this was something because you know. Food insecure at the time when I did this research, food insecurity among students wasn't widely researched. wasn't a topic, not in Canada anyway, not something that was widely researched. Um, certainly not with the connection to mental health. And with uh, with that, my hope was really to get the conversation started, and absolutely uh, hoping that it, it contributes to positive positive change down the road. Um, but to to and you know answer your question, we we did. So after the study was completed and after some of the papers were published, uh, I did actually have a very popular on-campus food retailer reach out Mm -hmm. to me uh, to have a conversation about how they can make a difference uh, when it comes to food insecurity, which is, uh, from my perspective, very Mm -hmm. interesting because really it Mm -hmm. comes down to money. Make your food affordable for students. (laughs) Yeah, that was my answer to them. And uh, to say that mm-hmm. to a corporation is uh, is interesting because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not always it's not always going to be uh, it's kind of sometimes it's like Occam's razor. Right. As the saying goes, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's the most obvious answer. And the obvious answer is that it, your food is too expensive. For sure. And, you know, I can and I'm pretty sure Jackie as well, all of us, you know, have being in being an undergrad students now graduate students I can see how sometimes you know you go to the university and the food there is very expensive and you want to eat something healthy you know just even the option between healthy foods right food choices Mm -hmm. that you're making sometimes you know the choices that you're making is basically what is 
the least amount of money at this moment. And usually that's a piece of pizza versus, exactly. you know, a salad mm-hmm. or something more filling. So yeah, I, I, it's, it's, um, that's why I was, you know, curious to see if there is any potential solutions. And I'm sure since the time that you've done your research, things have changed in the university environment slowly around food. Um, and I'm hoping that there is even more change changes that arise. Yeah, I, I really hope so, Bridby. Um, and, you know, my opinion um, has on this is, well, of course, it's informed by the research that I did, but it's also, as Jackie mentioned in the intro, um, really rooted in some of the advocacy work that I've done since my master's. And um, it, it's become increasingly clear to me that food insecurity is an income issue, right? Yes, um, sure. So ac- widening access and providing access is to good food that's nutritious, that's satiating, that doesn't compromise on someone's dignity. That's where I, that's where I want us to get. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. I remember speaking of the university food environment when I was doing my undergrad, uh, we had one Tim Hortons on campus and Tim Hortons is known for maybe not having the most nutritious food, but typically having affordable food choices. And Mm -hmm. they replaced the Tim Hortons with this bougie, like cafe. So the cost of getting like a muffin or like a croissant or a breakfast sandwich or something like that literally doubled because of the choice that this university, you know, made to replace Tim Hortons with something else. And that something else being, you know, quite unaffordable compared to other options. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, that really speaks to what my participants said in in the research that I did, where they're making trade-offs, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And as students, we're all too, um, well, as a prior student myself, but I'm sure, uh, you you know, you both are students and you, um, I'm sure, can relate to this. There's, you're just constantly having to decide, what do I need right now? Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you're studying, often you just want you know, a coffee and a muffin or a snack, and Mm. you want that to be affordable and for you to have good options for you to choose from. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy that in the world that we're living in, we're making those trade-offs between necessity, you know, like food. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, definitely. So continuing to discuss the university environment. So your research, both quantitative and qualitative, show this very strong relationship between food insecurity and psychological distress in university students. Um, From what I've seen in different university environments is that most times, you know, psychological and mental health services are separate from any services that can help address food insecurity if those services to address food insecurity in particular even exist. Do you think that it's important that universities better support students in tackling like the intersection of these issues? And maybe you could speak to what you think good university-based solutions to food insecurity and mental health look like. 
That's an excellent question, Jackie, um, and certainly a recommendation that I posed as well and continue to advocate for. You know, it's important for institutions to recognize that there is an intersection of these problems on our campuses and integrate services that address all of the key areas of health. You know, Bridvi, you um, you talked about sleep quality earlier, right? That's yeah. also just as important. Social and community supports, physical health, etc. So while the mental health and food services that are offered on campus are very important, it became increasingly clear during my research, and certainly once I entered the workforce and continued to work in community health, that a lack of financial security is at the center of many of these issues. And it really is up to our universities and policymakers to implement better programs and services to ease the financial burdens that students endure in their pursuit of education, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's really not something that that students need to be dealing with on top of all of the other things they need to do as students. So faculty members, university staff, counselors, and all of those involved in promoting student mental health and wellness should be aware of the high prevalence of food insecurity, and they should be prepared to assist students in navigating available supports as well. And broadly speaking, I think people in positions of power have a role to play in advocating for basic uh, basic supports like basic income and other kinds of assistance for student populations from my, from my perspective. And, you know, this can also include advocating for increasing funding streams, right? More student grants, or even just reducing or halting the increase in the cost of actually accessing education and improving access to healthy and affordable food on campus and in communities where students live is also really uh, an important way to do that. And um, and that's kind of what I was doing when I spoke with the on-campus food vendor and retailer. I was saying to them, well, you know, one way you can change things is make it affordable for students and mm -hmm. offer a variety of foods. So there is a lot of yeah. work that needs to be done. Absolutely. Yeah. Just thinking about the university environment that Bridby and I are in. Um, I think Bridby, you mentioned this earlier. Pizza is usually, um, the most affordable option on campus, which is perhaps yeah. not the most nutritious. Mm -hmm. From my own experiences, so I went to Western for my undergrad in 2010, and I started at um, Ontario Tech for my master's in 2016. So in that time, I did not notice much of a difference with, um, with affordable food, which is wild. That's a long time. Why weren't there changes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, um, you know, thinking about that, I, I just want to iterate like the importance of studies like yours um, in play a huge role because you're basically, you know, identifying these issues and are, are you know, the student's voice in, in a way. And so I just wanted to, you know, bring, um, you know, awareness of that, that studies like this research like this, that kind of, you know, get you talking to the students and getting them to sort of voice their problems are sort of the first steps um, into, into actually implementing change. Um, and so it's so amazing that, you know, even that the vendor that reached out to you, I think that's like a first step, right? Mm -hmm. um, because you were, mm -hmm. you, you were able to talk to them and um, you know, you're, it's back, whatever you're saying is backed up by evidence. These are real life issues. These are yeah. issues that students in our universities are facing. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think I just wanted to say that that's, um, you know, give credit to you as well and uh, the people that are doing research like this, because I think it's so important and it helps so much in that advocacy um, stage as well. Thanks so much, Brittany. Uh, it really was a team effort. And mm -hmm. at the center of that uh, were our participants, right? Because without their um, participation and their courage to share their stories, uh, mm -hmm. we, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know what their experiences are. For them to participate and uh, for them to be so open and vulnerable, because this is a very vulnerable topic. Okay, so you know, I don't mean to bring COVID into this because we're, we have sort of heard enough of the pandemic and we've had enough of the pandemic. But I think, you know, I, I have to bring COVID into this and just talk about, you know, COVID-19, you know, impacts have sort of led to, you know, changes in the number of people experiencing food insecurity in Canada mm -hmm. and across the world. And, um, you know, Jackie and I discussed, a, a you know, Statistic Canada report that was published earlier, mm -hmm. um, talking about how, you know, in that period, um, in the beginning period of the pandemic, fall 2020, um, we, there was actually less number of uh, people experiencing food insecurity compared to um, the data from the 2017 and 2018 year. And it was um, talking about, you know, possible explanation for that was uh, the implementation of some of the financial assistance that we've mm -hmm. seen come out of the pandemic, like, you know, CERB. And yeah. so, and also because of the economics shutdowns, um, there has been decrease in, you know, spending and so increase in that disposable income in a household. So right. the possible explanation is that uh, the social assist, the programs that were implemented, um, you know, in combination with that increase in disposable income has sort of mitigated um, levels of food insecurity in Canada. So what are your, so I guess my question to you is, you know, because of COVID-19 and the changes that we're seeing, um, if you had, you know, were to conduct your research again in this current context, in this pandemic context, do you think you would yield similar results um, and, you know, any key experiences uh, or differences, sorry, you might ex expect? This is a really good question. And, and, and I know that, you know, uh, we, we've taught, we all talk about the pandemic a lot, but you know, we, yeah. we do need to talk about it, right. It's, it's at the top of For our sure. minds and, um, we would be remiss not to mention it, especially when we're talking about a very important health and social issue, right. It is a public health issue, mm -hmm. food insecurity. So my For research sure. was conducted, um, pre-pandemic, so between 2016, and 2018. So all of my findings are speaking to a context um, without the pandemic, of course, taking into consideration. Yes. But that being said, I think the fact surely signals how much needs to be done, because if anything, we know that this has been a serious problem, excuse me, serious problem on our campuses even before the pandemic, right? So yes. income is the strongest predictor of food insecurity. And we know that COVID has complicated a lot of income streams for students and also likely intensified the impact of food insecurity. Uh, now, what you mentioned, Bridvi, with, um, you know, there was a slight dip in the, in the rate of food mm -hmm. insecurity compared to the year mm -hmm. prior. I think you absolutely, um, your, your analysis of it, uh, I think is, is totally in line with mine as well, because mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of income supports offered, right? Especially mm -hmm. in the beginning of the pandemic. That said, yeah those income supports have stopped since then. Right. For um, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, so 
I would actually expect the impacts to be that much greater once they stopped Mm -hmm. should the research be done today. And for students who were able to Mm -hmm. access federal and provincial government programs for assistance, these assistance programs, as far as I know anyway, have been developed as temporary relief, right? They're not permanent relief. So the question needs to be asked, what does this mean for students once we're out of the woods with the pandemic, right? And the Mm -hmm. temporary relief suddenly stops. So Mm -hmm. we know that food insecurity was a very serious issue long before COVID emerged. So how are students going to continue to be supported if we're only supporting them when we're in a state of emergency? For sure. And, and, you know, uh, Jackie and I were even saying earlier, you know, it would be interesting to see what the results, the data is now, because we're sort of getting in that post-pandemic stage or maybe not post-pandemic, but (laughs) the end of that pandemic stage. Um, And also, um, I think it reinforces the fact that income is the, you know, the key precipitating factor of food food insecurity, because, you know, you have the CERB, it was implemented and you see that dip in food insecurity. So these social assistance programs, they are working and what they're doing is providing income to, um, to, uh, you know, individuals and for them to be able to buy the food that they need or whatever it might be, if it was housing or anything, but I think it reinforces that this is this, this is where the solution is. Yes. And I'm so glad you said that um, because that's, that is really what I constantly advocate for. And really, uh, I'll give you another example of, um, of support for income being the solution. Uh, So there's a food insecurity research group at the university of Toronto called proof led by uh, Dr. Val Tarasuk, who does a lot of incredible work in this, um, in this topic. And mm-hmm. their research group found a very similar finding in, in the older adult population. And they found that the risk of food insecurity for older adults literally drops in half the yeah. moment they turn 65. So 64-year-olds and 65-year-olds Wow. Have half the risk because when you're 65, you have access to uh, the old age security. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have yes. social assistance. So exactly. if that doesn't tell us that, okay, it's, it's really, it is income, right? Because on mm-hmm. your six, you're 64 years old and your risk of food insecurity is, you know, whatever, whatever percent, but it is depending on yeah. a number of factors. But as soon as you turn 60 on your 65th birthday, suddenly it's cut in half. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully moving forward, we see more income-based solutions that are not contingent on us being in a, an emergency situation. A pandemic. Like you said, Tara. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tara, you mentioned some of the advocacy work that you have been involved with in terms of food security and raising awareness about, um, that issue as well as mental health. What do you think that students can do to help create awareness and keep conversations going around food insecurity in the university environment? Uh, Yeah, thanks Jackie for that question. I think, you know, the onus is on people in positions of power, um, both at the university and in government to continue these conversations with action and to demonstrate that they are interested and willing to do the work to improve student health. But for students, 
I think they can keep sharing their stories. And I know it isn't always easy to talk about these deeply personal experiences. And as Bridby mentioned, you know, you have to be really vulnerable to share. Um, and I'm not suggesting that everyone is in a place to be able to share and to be vulnerable, but shedding light on these lived experiences when you hear it coming directly from students is so meaningful. And it can go so such a long way in creating awareness and also comforting those that are going through it as well, right? To make them feel like they're not alone and there are other people uh, in, their, in their corner and, uh, and in their community. So I found with my qualitative study that by the end of our interviews, my participants had developed such a bond with each other. There seemed mm -hmm. to be like a level of comfort that they had uh, through talking with each other and owning the shared experience. So I think really, I would say for students to create awareness is to keep, keep talking about it as much as they can. Yeah, I just want to say, um, you know, as has having conducted a focus group, I think um, that was the most rewarding experience for me um, as well in terms of just seeing because my focus groups have been with patients and um, okay. so with heart failure. So just them sharing, you know, their um, their lived experiences in terms of managing their condition. I found that that bond and that friendship that they have sort of made, um, it was one of the most rewarding experiences of, you know, uh, of my graduate journey so far, um, you know, having those patients come and say like, oh, we've made, you know, friends. Um, and yeah. so I can see that in terms of, you know, you probably would have felt the same way when you saw these students connect with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, especially when you're asking them to open up about such personal uh, experiences, yeah. I think when they have that shared bond uh, over this uh, experience that they all can kind of um, resonate with it, it. Yeah. It makes that bond so much stronger. For sure. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of discussing, um, food insecurity, I think this discussion has been very meaningful and I hope, you know, our listeners found it informative as well. Um, but moving back to, you know, your sort of general master's experience, did you find it challenging to learn and apply two different methodological approaches during your master's? <laughs> uh, challenging, yes, yeah. uh, yes, but also very exciting and important. Uh, I was mm -hmm. very sure that I wanted to apply both approaches to researching food insecurity and mental health because I wanted to describe the big picture while also filling in the gaps with firsthand experiences and stories. So for me, using quantitative data and statistics to provide a descriptive sort of overview of the prevalence and the impact of food insecurity in our campus community was really meaningful. But from my perspective, without engaging students in conversations about their experiences, a very important piece would have been missing. As we talked about earlier, I think that that really brought um, bringing those two approaches together uh, made that description so much more comprehensive and holistic. And, you know, I was really mm -hmm. fortunate to be supported by both of my thesis advisors and my committee member as well, who uh, not only believed in this vision, but they also each had expertise in quantitative or qualitative research or mixed methods mm -hmm. research. So they had the skills and the insights to guide me through this process. And I definitely consider myself very lucky and fortunate in that aspect, because I know that not all graduate students have, um, have that kind of diverse uh, experience. you know, thesis committee to support them. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and I, 
and I feel that, you know, when you are applying sort of different methodologies in your thesis uh, or in your research, you really develop an appreciation for the need of, you know, both and the value of both uh, different methodology, methodological approaches and how they really, you know, one is neither, you know, better or worse than the other. Um, They're all needed in research. They are all needed uh, to be applied to understand, you know, complex health issues uh, and any research topic in general. So I think, um, you know, being in a research program where you get to use variety and different of different methods, you get that appreciation for uh, the need and, you know, you see value in both. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's wonderful too, Tara, that you had such great um, supervisors and a committee Mm -hmm. member to support you. Bridvi and I have often spoken on the podcast about how important we think supervisors are to ensuring that you have a positive graduate school experience and that you're able to be successful, which you clearly were during your master's program. Absolutely. I think that having, you know, uh, supervisors that that guide you in a way that works best for you, but still holds on to your vision um, is is really so, so important. And it it can completely change your your journey. Absolutely. So now you are no longer a student, Tara, you are still (laughs) working in the public health field, um, but your work now is no longer completely focused on food insecurity the way that it was during your master's program, or sorry, I should say food insecurity and mental health. I think a lot of students in graduate school worry about being able to find a job specifically in their area of expertise after graduating and are often mm-hmm. hesitant to branch outside of that either because like you, they've, they're very passionate about this topic area or right. because they don't feel qualified to expand um, outside of their topic area. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for graduate students who are preparing to enter the working world now that you've been in that world for a few years. Right. Yeah, no, thank you for asking this question. And, um, you know, my advice to grad students who are worried about their next step is uh, pretty simple. Uh, Mm -hmm. Keep an open mind. I think it's easy to get pigeonholed into one area of research that you're comfortable and familiar with, or even just really passionate about and worry that you might not be able to contribute anywhere else. But this is simply not true. In grad school, you learn to think critically, right? And you learn how to ask questions and seek answers. And these skills are really valuable in the work workforce. So really, I encourage students to reach out and connect with people who are doing work that looks interesting, even if it's not exactly what they're doing, uh, and ask them how they got there, what they like about what they do, and why they stayed where they're at. And conversations like these will really inspire students and and give them ideas of what work they see themselves doing, and actually, uh, just as importantly, and maybe even more importantly, what work they don't see themselves doing. Yes. And and especially, you know, as researchers uh, and as as scientists and and people in the in the world of academia, at your core, you're a curious person. Right. So Mm -hmm. after a while, you're going to have questions about different topics. So lean on that and go with that. I think don't be afraid of venturing into new territory. 
I really liked how you brought up curiosity in the last question and the first question that we asked you. (laughs) That wasn't planned. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's kind of just like the perfect, like closing the loop on this interview. So thank you so much again for coming on and talking with us about your research and your experiences in grad school and beyond grad school. Bridvi and I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation. And um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's I, I, I'm, I'm not in the space anymore, in, in the grad school space anymore. So any opportunity to chat with, um, with fellow researchers, it, it, uh, it gets me really excited. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. And if you are willing to stay on for a little longer, Bridvi and I always end our episode talking about our grad school wins and fails, which are basically a highlight from for us since we do this every month on the podcast. It's our highlight from the past month, as well as something that, you know, didn't go as well or we want to work on improving from the past month. So if you're willing to join us, we would love if you could share some of your wins and fails, um, be it personal from work or even back from grad school, we would love to hear that from you. Definitely happy to happy to share. All right. Well, how about Bridvi, you go first sharing your grad school wins and fails. Okay. Um, so I'll take the, the route of sharing my fail first and then my win. Um, so my fail is that last week I had, um, I had to do a seminar presentation, um, for grad students. Um, there were some, you know, supervisors as well joining, um, sorry, faculty members. And basically I had two monitors set up so that I would have one monitor for me to look at my notes and the other monitor to, um, which would be shared with um, the seminar. Oh um, no! It's so funny because I am I'm usually an overprepared type of person, and so I actually did a little test run with Jackie the day before, making sure everything was fine. Um, Jackie, you can attest to this. It was fine, right? Yes, absolutely. It was fine. Yeah. You did it like three times. <laughs> exactly, and, and it was fine. I had everything set up, and then. I went to share my screen and it was switched. So then basically I was, I had to, the entire presentation, I basically would have had to look to the left of my, um, uh, to my left screen, which to, to read my notes while everyone's looking at me. So they're basically looking at a side view of me and it um, was, and it messed up in the beginning. It kind of gave, you know, it threw me off a little bit in the beginning. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, I don't have access to my notes. So, but then it was fine. I basically had to do the whole presentation without my notes. Like I had it on the side, but I wasn't looking at, at my notes um, all the time. Um, so it was a little bit of, you know, it was, it came, it, went on, went, started off as a rocky start, but it all, um, was okay after, um, I did well, the presentation went okay, but it was, but in the beginning, it really threw me off in the beginning. And I, I had to like, sort of recollect myself. And it was like, I think there was like 50 people logged on and I was like, Oh my God, this is not happening to me, but, um, it's okay. I found my way. (laughs) I'm glad you made it, you know, yeah, it, it I made was, it. yeah. and <laughs> sometimes it's um, just one of those things, right? 
Yeah. And it was like the first time I actually had that happen to me. Um, so it was, I was a little bit embarrassed in the beginning, but, <laughs> um, but the funniest thing was, so while I was figuring that out in the beginning, my supervisor logged in and she was like, well, Bridvi's figuring that out. I would like to plug her podcast, you know, Jackie and I's <laughs> yeah. podcast. And so she started talking to the audience about the podcast. So it was nice that we got a little plug from our supervisor. Um, yeah. And in terms of when, um, I would say, first of all, you know, being able to present at the seminar and, um, I think it's always, I always find it really rewarding and it's, it's a nice experience when I get to present something to other grad students and, you know, have conversations with them. So, um, I would say that that's a win. And then also, you know, things are beginning to sort of open up, um, uh, I am going to a conference um, in um, May um, for the Canadian Nutrition Society. Oh, that's wonderful. Congrats. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really great for me. And I just want to attest that your seminar presentation was very good and very informative and that as an audience member, the technical hiccup at the beginning was not <laughs> at all a big deal. Even if it caused you stress, it did not yeah. bother the audience. So, well, thank you. <laughs> all right. So, I will go next to share my wins and fails. I will, like Bridby, I'll start with my fails. So, I've spoken on the podcast about how I'm trying to develop a better exercise routine because. During the pandemic, it just, it's been difficult for me to do the YouTube at home workouts. So now that things are opening up again, I've been going to the gym and I recently joined a yoga studio. Um, but then oh, I cool. ended up, yeah, it's been really great, but then I ended up getting a stress fracture in my foot. So perhaps <laughs> I, I overexerted myself. <laughs> Oh no, so much enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, way too enthusiastic. And I guess I'm just getting older. Um, but it's pretty much like feeling back to a hundred percent now. So um I'm feeling good, but yeah, I've just kept having to persevere through all of these challenges. I feel like my physical activity routine has faced in 2020 with shutdowns and then an injury. Oh yeah. well, I hope you feel better soon. Thank you. It's, and yes, I am. It's always annoying to have those um, injuries. Yeah. And then um, my win is actually similar to Bridvi's win. I will also be going to a conference in May, although I'll be going to a different conference than the one Bridvi is going to. I'm going to one mm -hmm. in Phoenix and that's a city I've oh, never nice. been to before. It'll be nice to travel internationally again and to get to share my research in a presentation with some peers and colleagues. So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's, that's really a big exciting. win. Best of luck to I both of you with that. Thank you Thanks. so much. And I think that's a big win for Jackie and I, who, you know, didn't get to travel and go to conferences um, yeah. the past couple of months and two years, actually. So, yeah, I'm yeah, really excited. For sure. Tara? <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Happy to share my fails and wins. I'll start with a fail as well, just to follow suit. So um, this fail is a, it's an interesting one. Uh, I don't know if we can call it, well, it, it is a fail, but it's, it's almost like a fail because of bad luck. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, in one of the, the storms, the wind storms that we had recently, um, 
I've moved into a new space and within the first week of moving into this new house, uh, the, the wind in this area was so terrible that it's, there's a beautiful big tree in the front uh, that completely had one branch snap and pull oh, down no. the hydro line. So we were out of power for a whole week, oh, which, no. uh, yeah. So it's, uh, it, I guess I would consider it a fail because it was just like, come on, I just moved in. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's just, um, I guess, you know, the, the power of the power of, uh, nature, right. You just, mm-hmm. sometimes you just have to deal with it. So it was, it was more how, bad luck than anything. How long did it go out for? So it was, so the thing is that, you know, it was, um, it was the tree that, so the branch snapped, pulled the hydro line down, but then Toronto, I live in Toronto, Toronto hydro wouldn't take, uh, or the, the, it's a city of Toronto tree and they wouldn't collect the, the branch without Toronto hydro taking the hydro line off of it because it was a cable, Mm -hmm. right? It could be a live wire. So there were just so many, so many pieces, um, and, and moving parts and so many people involved. Uh, and then we had to get an, you know, a, a bunch of things done just to sort this issue out. So uh, luckily, oh we're very God. fortunate to have family members close to us. So I could stay, you know, I, I didn't have to be out of power for a week because I can't even imagine having to not have power for it. Really, you can't, right? Everything we do mm-hmm. is online now. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So that okay, would be let's fail. Let's get to your win. <laughs> yeah. So my win, um, this I'm, I'm realizing now both of them are very much um, outside of the, the work and school space, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Maybe I'm mixing things up. So I, um, I foster uh, rescued dogs. They, they come from, you know, uh, usually states in, uh, in America, but mm-hmm. I recently had, um, so my, my foster dog right now, uh, she arrived on Saturday from Mexico. So I've been taking care of her and the win is, well, other than just, you know, having a dog around, which is a win in and of itself. Um, she's also just adjusting so well, uh, to life in Canada. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's That's amazing. Mm -hmm. What's her name? Her her name is Tecla, which, uh, in Spanish means key. So (laughs) yeah. And um, and that's the name that she got in the uh, shelter that she was in, in Mexico, but she's just this like incredible, really playful, but also gentle, just like a, just a bag of sunshine. <laughs> what breed is she? Uh, is she? So she's a mixed breed. Um, so mm-hmm. it's hard to tell, but with her yeah. ears, they're very characteristic of a German shepherd, but her size is very small. So she definitely has a bunch of, bunch of breeds mixed. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that, um, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the lab birds podcast. And thank you to our guest Tara for joining us. Our next episode, we will be talking all about the peer review process and publishing in academic journals. So tune in next month for another episode and take care.